When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. You would not expect, if you're at Stanford, that one of the Japanese pupils there would be a spy for Japan before World War II. You would not expect it at Harvard. You would not expect an American Navy personnel to be willing to sell, to make money, to sell information about ships, supplies, and things of that sort to these Japanese on American soil. It's a real risky business. Welcome to the True Fiction Project, a podcast series that explores the origins of fiction. Every week, we begin with an interview, nonfiction, followed by a creative piece, fiction, inspired by something from the interview. The idea is to demonstrate, of course, that fiction is born out of our life experiences. Now, here's your host, storyteller, author, public speaker, health and wellness expert, Renita Hora. Welcome back to the True Fiction Project. I am your host, Renita Hora. And on today's show, we are going to feature a guest that we've actually had before. She is author Denise Frasino. And the last time we had her on the True Fiction Project, we talked about her books, The Orchid Trilogy, and she read specifically from one of them. So Denise, great to have you back. Thanks for joining us today. Thank you. It's wonderful to be here. So, Denise, obviously, I am fascinated. Our listeners are fascinated with your stories. So we're thrilled to have you back on the show. And as a reminder, you write historical fiction. But your fiction is so based on fact because you have put so much research into your work. It's admirable. I think that when we last spoke, you had said that you had interviewed for the Orchid Trilogy something like over 56 World War II veterans. Is that right? Correct. Did I get that right? That's right. Cor- <laughs> I'm trying to find 57, but I, I'm, running, I'm running out of time and people. It's very sad. <laughs> oh, goodness. Okay. Well, I'm sure with a little bit of dedicated perseverance, and I know you have that, you will find number 57. (laughs) (laughs) And last time you had talked about your father's influence, and it was a very, very interesting thread. It was also a Japan-based story excerpt that you had read off. This time we're talking about something a little bit different, and that is the subject of spies, and specifically spies at the time of Pearl Harbor. So I'd love to start out, Denise, by asking you why it is, in your opinion, that the world, America certainly, but the world, has this fascination with spies and spy networks and how they operate and why they operate. What are your thoughts? I think it's such an undercurrent of the world, spies are. And you never know who they are or what they look like 
or if it's your neighbor or a friend or even a family member who is involved in this undercover discovery of information to help one side or the other. And that is alluring. It's attractive. It's sexy. It's an entire package of, you know, something that is almost inconceivable to a lot of people on how they would get involved and and how they would behave. So I think it's an alluring subject matter. Yeah, you touch on some very key words there, alluring, sexy, and it's fascinating. I mean, I'm thinking about the TV show The Americans, which was perhaps one of the more recent, you know, spy shows that I watched. And there was another very recent one, I can't think of the name, about British spies, MI5. But Alluring, yes, this makes for great content, but the idea that they can be in your home or your next door neighbor or part of your family, how spies and spy networks actually create families in the name of their job. And we find it sexy. Tell me about that. Why do we find it sexy? It's a taboo subject. I grew up Catholic, and there was a lot of taboos, but (laughs) it's something that is not in the regular course of society. You would not expect, if you're at Stanford, that one of the Japanese pupils there would be a spy for Japan before World War II. You would not expect it at Harvard. You would not expect an American Navy personnel to be willing to sell, to make money to sell information about ships, supplies, and things of that sort to these Japanese on American soil. It's a real risky business. Risky business. Now, there was an article in the New York Times, I think, just a couple of months ago about the U.S. and China increasing their global spy operations. And of course, we've had some incidences this year, maybe in February with China's spy balloon and you know, being in the news, that article said, it quoted Wang Wenbin, a Chinese foreign ministry spokesperson, who said that it is the U.S. that is the number one surveillance country and has the largest spy network in the world. Given all the research you've done in this area, Denise, is that an accurate statement in your opinion? You know, the Bible, and I think I mentioned this before, the Bible says the two oldest occupations are hookers and spies. (laughs) Isn't that wonderful? So I don't know if you could place it on only one country, because we all know that every country has spies. And you would have to have a elongated definition of what a spy really is. Now, pre-World War II, the Japanese were encouraging anyone to step inside their consulate on American ground and offer up anything. So mm-hmm. were they actual trained spies, like came out of the Nakano district, where they trained thousands of Japanese to be spies? Or were they just somebody who was out in their fishing boat and saw a Navy ship go by and saw something unusual activity and ran to the consulate and said, at this point in time, I saw them going from here to here, and this was the activity I saw aboard that ship. Mm, so absolutely. you see... There's because of the encouragement of what they were trying to prepare for the war, because they had it planned. They started planning the attack on Pearl Harbor in January of 1941. Hmm. That is when they got serious about it. And they 
did all sorts of different activities to prepare for that war, including there was an island that was close in structure and everything to Oahu. So they practiced all of their dive bombing there. They adjusted their water bombs, their torpedoes and things to be just a certain way because they couldn't go down deep because Pearl Harbor is not that deep. And then they did have this one one spy that they sent in March of 1941 to Oahu specifically. And that was, was that Takeo Yoshikawa? Yes, Tadashi, and he was posing as Tadashi Moramura. As okay. the Yeah, as the consulate, as the private consulate. And he arrived, he was handsome, he wore his hair long, he didn't look like anyone. They only elicited the extremely intelligent and they trained them very well. Although he he was really not a trained spy. He was just good at what he did. Mm-hmm. He uh, dove. He dove down into the water at night at Pearl to make sure that there was no submarine nets to see if there were and if they existed where they were. He walked the field of Hickam, the outside, in work pants. He took an airplane, an open air airplane with a geisha over and took <laughs> pictures and sent them back to Japan. In the read I'm going to do a little, little later on, I, I discuss some of the things that he was doing, specifically in a geisha house up on the mountaintop that had an incredible view of Pearl Harbor. So he was, he was their number one person. And then what they did was the Japanese consulate in Japan said, get us a map of where they are. I want to know where the ships are, their names, their births, and divide it into a grid. And that was precisely what they used for their attack, was his his drawings. Hmm. Now, this strategy of flying over with a geisha and his association with the geisha, what was that about? Is that just personal interest or was that to actually throw the Americans off the trail, so to speak? Well, sure, he looked like a tourist. He wore casual clothes. He wasn't, even though he was with the consulate, he would wear yeah. different outfits to look like he belonged in that circumstance. In other words, he dressed the part. From what I understand, he was not the only one. I recently read about a German spy called, I don't know if I'm pronouncing his name right, but Otto Kuhn, Kuhn who was a part of the Nazi party, and he apparently sold his information about the U.S. to Japan. Is that correct? There, there was a lot of interchange, exactly. And throughout mm-hmm. the war, the Japanese and Germans were constantly exchanging information. In fact, once it was shut down on American soil, the plan was they were going to move the spy operation to Mexico. Well, after a while, Mexico said, you're out of here. You know, no, we're mm-hmm. declaring war on you, too. Uh, because of what they were doing inside of Mexico. But that didn't stop them. They moved to Spain. It was called TO, T-O, which was an operation where the Germans and the Japanese were continuing to exchange information, and the spies were still busy, very hard at work. Fascinating, fascinating. So would it be fair to say that the whole of the Pearl Harbor operation was a result of a spy operation? Well, yes. I mean, how, how else are you going to know how to attack, where to attack, what direction to come from, and to approach us totally at surprise? One of Japanese's tactics, howsomever, was always to either a holiday or a Sunday morning. Traditionally, that's when they attacked. 
throughout history, if you go back very far. This research that they were doing, there is a map from 1934 that goes back. That's when the Greater East Asian Prosperity Spear was started, and they believed in the totalitarianism and the militarism and expansionism led by emperor worship. So it went way, way, way back that they were collecting information. You wouldn't have spies placed in these very obvious places of high education as Stanford and Harvard, etc., without a goal. There was an absolute goal. The problem was Yamamoto said, well, you know, we can try this. I'll give it six months, but you don't know what you're doing because I lived in America. He was at Harvard from 1919 to 1921. Then he had two postings as an attache in D.C. with the Mm. likes of U.S. Secretary of Navy Wilbur. So you see, way, way back, they were collecting information. And that's not uncommon for any country. It's collating it and getting it organized. And, you know, this is where culture comes in. And remember, we have to talk, this is, this is 1941. This mm-hmm. is not now. And mm-hmm. think of the culture back then. It was very strict. It was very the emperor. You die for the emperor, no matter what. And there was another spy here in Seattle who was incredible. And his name, ironically, was Yamamoto, Kenikichi Yamamoto. And he ran, Hmm. yeah, so he ran, he was called the Yellow Al Capone here because he actually met with Al Capone and was running the drugs to Al Capone. Mm -hmm. He was instrumental in Shanghai Check and getting it in. And he was a very fierce, they never caught him for any of the murders, of course. They caught him for tax evasion, but he was here for 20 years in Seattle running it. And he had uh, people coming in through the canneries and down and collecting information. It is purported that they made models of our bridges, Mm -hmm. dissected them, and shipped them back to Japan so they would know exactly the structures. The Japanese in 1935 again, or 1934 it was, asked for a map of all of the waterways in Los Angeles. This came from the Japanese consulate. I have a copy of it included in my slideshow because I give a slideshow on this. And, well, of course, the government said, no, thank you. We're not going to give you that. Well, they got it anyway. They mm. had um, some of their Japanese people work up their way up. And this is, this is another thing to think about. If you don't know who the spies are, what mm-hmm. do you do when war breaks out, such as, as it did? We asked the Japanese to move away from the shoreline, which was very mm-hmm. vulnerable, correct? Mm-hmm. Yeah. And if I had known, Renita, if I had known, oh, Renita's a spy, we're going to take just her. Mm-hmm. What would they have known? What would the Japanese have figured out that we were reading, able to read their mail, that we were I able, see. that we had cracked their codes, and we knew who these messages specifically were going to and who were the primary people involved if we selected only the primary people to move away from the water. Had they changed their code, which we refer to as the Purple Code, America Mm -hmm. called it the Purple Code, if they had changed that, we would not have had the capability to do such things as shoot Yamamoto right out of the sky because we knew the path he was flying. That's how our men got him. That's how our pilots Mm -hmm. find him, was through decrypting the Japanese code. So see, all of this secret 
information is extremely viable and important in a war. And unfortunately, we were at war for a long time. And please remember, too, at the outbreak of the war, we were losing until midway. We were were really getting kicked. And so (laughs) we were. We'd lost, you know, how many thousands of men. We were losing ships. There were eight submarines up and down the West Coast, Japanese submarines. On the East Coast, it was Germans. On the West mm-hmm. Coast, it was the Japanese submarines, and they were sinking every supply ship they could come across because they didn't want any oil or lumber or supplies, anything to get back to Hawaii to build back up the forces. Five Americans died off of the West Coast between December 7th, 1941 and the end of that year. How many days is that? My Several goodness. ships were sunk, and five Americans died, and no one ever talks about it. But and that's no one a ever fact. talks about it. But now this goes back to my earlier question about, you know, the U.S. is supposed to have one of the most sophisticated spy networks in the world, so much so that when things happen, including recent events, very recent events with Hamas and Israel, people will say, "Well, the U.S. dropped the ball." They should have known the spy network failed, or things like that. So going back to 1941, what happened there? Did they drop the ball? Now, war in Europe had started years before, and they, we really needed to help them. We were on the Lend-Lease, and they really wanted us in. And we couldn't be the first one to fire the shot. Our president really wanted Japan to fire the shot first. In fact, so much so that he sent three old yachts and things of this sort, put World War I cannons on them, said, okay, that's your Navy battleship. I want the three of you to go straight towards Japan. He was trying to get them to fire the first shot out of the Philippines. He had three boats leaving the Philippines. That is Cruise of the Lanakai, which is one of my favorite books in all the research, the 11 years of research that I've done on this subject matter. Reading that book was very eye-opening as to how desperate the president was to get Japan to start the war. So, yes, we knew about it. We were, there was 14 messages sent from Japan you know, through their code on dif- different times. And we knew, so we knew basically the date... We didn't know the place and the time. Mm-hmm. And those were not put into priority declassification, and mm-hmm. they were discovered after the attack. My goodness. Yeah, well, so, there was hand-done hand back then, too, remember. A lot of it came in, and it was hand-transcribed, and then someone had to put the 14 messages together to get it to work. So, Yeah, we didn't have any of the sophisticated tech that is a no-brainer today. No artificial intelligence. Imagine that. Denise, I have to ask you, before we go into your reading, of course, on this show, we are looking to explore the journey from nonfiction to fiction. So your story is just so ideal. But given all of the research that you've done, and I know how much research you have done and are doing, continuing to do, I have to ask... Why did you decide to write fiction rather than create nonfiction accounts of everything that you've discovered? 
That's my theater background. Huh. I, you know, it, it, you know, and also I would have had to have footnotes. I'm not yes. good with that. And I'm being honest. I'm being totally honest. A lot of times, you know, now I read books like At Dawn We Slept. I've read those thick, huge Bibles on World War II. And, you know, you yawn and you don't, I don't know if you retain it as much. I think given lively characters from all of my, you know, 65 years of theater, you get a better story. I think you get a broader sense of readership because they're they're more apt to pick up and, you know, people are always saying, is that true? Is that true? And, I'm, and I'll have to point out what's true. Yes, this happened. This happened. This happened. And they're totally amazed. But they might not have picked that book up had it been a plain history book. Mm, I see. See? I see. I, I wanted a broader audience and one where... The impact could be stronger. The characters were more lively and fun. (laughs) I don't know if it's a fun subject, but it's fun. I think it's it's a fascinating subject, which means it's fun. And, of course, it's won the Hemingway Award, so it's number one. Thank you. Yes. No, thank you. Before we get into your reading, Denise, let our listeners know where they can find out more about your work the Orchid Trilogy, any of the books specifically, or about you in general? Just my name, Denise Frasino. My email is denise at Denise Frasino. And my webpage has several of, I have a blog, and my webpage has a lot of the interviews, and I'm putting up more as time allows. And I have a lot of history on that. And it's it's a wonderful page. Please, please go to it and look at it because these veterans deserve to have their stories told. So that's, I would just implore people to go to denisefrasino.com. You can also purchase my books and I send out signed, signed autograph copies. The first book is Orchids of War, which is pre-World War II. The second book, Storms from a Clear Sky, goes up to 1943. And then the third book, which I'm still working on, but I'm getting there, will be out. I don't know when, but it will go through the end of the war. Same characters. Same Mm -hmm. characters. It's a fascinating subject, a fascinating story. And for listeners who haven't heard Denise's last episode, I encourage you to do so. It's right there on the True Fiction Project website. And all of the series of episodes, I forget when we did it, it was earlier this year, I want to say in the May-June time frame, but again, fascinating. And certainly when your third book is out, whenever it's out, we're, we're going to have you back third time because it just gets better and better each time. <laughs> Thank you. And besides that, we were, we're planning a road trip, remember? You and I yes, are in the road. Yes, Yeah, that's what I'm going to contact you about in January, for sure, if not December. Bug you during Christmas time. That's fine. Yes, so historical fiction road trips. Here we come, Denise and Renita. It's a Denise and Renita show. Uh, Denise, thank you so much for joining us today on the True Fiction Project. I cannot wait to listen to your reading from Storms from a Clear Sky. 
When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Eddie guided the car up toward the Alawai Heights. From his rear view mirror, he had an unobstructed view of the destruction of Hickman Air Force Base and Ford Island beyond. He shifted his eyes briefly, observing the strong profile of Jack, who kept his watchful eye on the taxi driver in the front seat. Go here, up this drive, Marikani Drive. Lady owner from same island in Japan is Moromura, I think. Shigeku Island. You have many geisha here. She have many, many geisha here. The sausage finger of Mikami pointed to the driveway leading past a well-kept Japanese-style garden to a simple two-story structure with elongated eaves which curled slightly at their ends. A sign scripted in the language of the brazen new enemy read, Shushuko Ro. Below the translation in small letters, Spring Tide Restaurant. Jack held the door for their guide as Eddie rounded the front of the car, then followed them to the entrance. No one answered their knock. Kick it, Jack's head nodded toward the taxi driver. When the large man did not move, Eddie drew his gun. I think he means for you to kick in the door. The giant's shoulder drew back, then with one solid thrust of his massive leg, the latch gave way leaving a dusty, large footprint of Mikami's sandal. A faint scent of sweet perfume met them as they entered the cool, dark room. Eddie threw the shutters open, allowing the stream of light to fall across the drooping heads of an old Ikebani arrangement. The specific placement of each flower now bent with abandonment. Their once brilliant reds and greens browned and decaying like the ships in the harbor. Jack mounted the stairs with Eddie on his heels, breathing in the slight dust of desertion. The ladies had left in a hurry, with drawers still hanging open, very un-Japanese in their flight. Unless the spies had left days before the attack, they could not have gotten very far, maybe the higher regions of the mountains or the North Shore, where their tea house and its activities might be unfamiliar. Of the four room upstairs, only the one that faced the south held their attention. Eddie waited as Jack slid back the closed shutters over the windows. Eddie squinted into the bright sun, his mouth twitching in anger. How the hell did this happen? When Jack moved toward the closet, the stunning view below emerged clear and devastating. Far out to sea, the beautiful tropical green waters met the blue sky in one peaceful line. In stark contrast... Nearer to the shore, the USS Oklahoma lay on its side just off Fort Island. On what remained of Battleship Row, the shiny oil slick from the USS Arizona drifted on the waves, marking the spot where 1,512 sailors lost their lives. Further down the harbor at Pier 1010, only the partial hull of the USS Oglala listed above the waters. 
Inside the closet, Jack worked a compartment half concealed by the woodmaster's artistry. After a few moments, a hidden door slid open and he reached inside. The three legs of the telescope widen once removed from the confinement of the small space. Setting the tripod and scope before the window, Jack hunched over, peering through the lens. Eddie recognized the mixture of hatred and anger in Jack's good eye as he straightened, his tense body as rigid as one of the legs of the tripod. Eddie stepped forward to bend over the viewfinder. With powerful clarity focused on its prey, he watched the sailors perform their overwhelming duty of removing the rubble and debris to prepare for future battle. I can see the wedding ring on that sailor's hands. This is one hell of a telescope. You can read the name of each boat in their position like nobody's business. Eddie slowly rose to look around the room for more evidence, then stopped as the large man shuffled forward, filling the door frame. How many times did you say you brought Tadashi Moromura from the Japanese consulate here? Jack's voice did not veil his unspoken threat. He come here in the evenings for months. Like the perspiration on the man, the mumbled words dripped into the hollow of the room. I don't go inside. I don't come up here. He added in a hurry, his hands palms up, lifting with his shoulders, begging for understanding. I'd take him to a sightseeing airplane once with Geisha from this tea house. Jack and Eddie stood shoulder to shoulder in their renewed amazement. The task for any spy to gather valuable information from this spot emerged boundless. How easy to observe the movements of ships, the submarines, their moorings, and the times of the PBY patrols. The mechanisms of Pearl Harbor were handed to the enemy on a lacquered tea tray. Did he use binoculars at Kaneohe? Eddie demanded, remembering the last time he spoke with Sam, visualizing the kid's blood-soaked pants from the wound in his stomach. He waited, but realized the use of the binoculars was irrelevant. Just driving up the Pali, one had a superb view of their field. A good spy, like Moramura, would know where to get his information. I don't see any. The big man's half-smile and willingness to help at this late date mirrored the image of a pathetic puppy, brushed aside for having peed on the best rug. The sun set above them as they drove down the hillside toward the harbor. Cognizant of the view from the tea house paralleled the same vantage point from Lonnie Daniel's parents' home. Eddie's expression got the best of him. He hit the steering wheel with his open palm. The reality hit hard. The dashing Japanese man in the bright Hawaiian shirt he met at the Daniels' party the one he stood next to as they admired the view of the lights of the sleeping American fleet below was the very man who had handed over the map of the U.S. ships at port. The map of Pearl Harbor, found among the debris of the downed Japanese planes and minisubs, displaying the painstaking detail of the positions of each vessel, carefully broken into five segments, materialized as the handiwork of the man who had posed as the vice counsel at the Japanese consulate, Eddie's gut had been right. They left the taxi driver on the corner watching him scurry down the block. Eddie turned to regard Jack. Do you know where this Maramora is? Jack ignored the question. The FBI had failed. Tadashi Maramura, a hand-picked spy, just set sail back to Japan aboard the Swedish exchange ship, the MS Gripsholm. He could only hope 
The man who would arrive in the land of the rising sun as a hero was being swapped for an American who held as much knowledge of the enemy's working as Muramura. Eddie jerked the car into the traffic, wishing he had killed the handsome spy when he met him. He prayed his shadow did not somehow implicate Lonnie's family. I wanted to share with listeners that Season 2 of Shadow Realm, my YA fantasy fiction narrative podcast, is out. Episodes are being released now, so do look for it on any podcast platform that you tune in to listen to your favorite audio. This is The True Fiction Project, and I am your host, Renita Hora. Here at The True Fiction Project, we are always looking for great stories that make for compelling fiction. So, if you have a great story or know somebody who does, or if you are a writer who would like to contribute, then please do get in touch with us at renita.com forward slash contact. Thank you for listening to The True Fiction Project with Renita Hora. Be sure to subscribe to the newsletter to receive more inspiring stories showing how fiction is born from our everyday experiences. For more information, visit www.truefictionproject.com. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply.